0: Arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis, in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane, in 10 bulky gunny sacks, are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. Located on the Panhandle in Idaho, Coeur d'Alene is the largest city in Kootenai County, and ever-growing. With year-round recreation, and ideal landscape to do it in, it's easy to see why Coeur d'Alene has been called the playground of the Northwest.
1: This is a beautiful, grand house of Coeur built in 1904. We renovated it the last two years. our is also terrific for families. Silverwood and Triple Play offer great outdoor activities. Sandpoint's only a 45-minute drive from Coeur d'Alene. Let's check it out
0: a multitude of properties here in North Idaho available for rent and for purchase like this beautiful one I'm at right now on Lake Ponderé. You can find us here in Sandpoint or at the top of Schweitzer Mountain. Down on the lake you can boat, swim, all kinds of things. People go to where they're invited and come back to where they're well taken care of. Coeur d'Alene is an ideal destination for all travelers. I hope you like what we saw, we're a great community. Come on back, give us a visit. See you soon. Downsized by RP Fitton, chapter 14. Alan slumped in a scooped out blue vinyl chair in the hospital. He folded his arms and closed his eyes. Drained from the emotion of the afternoon, he tried not to drift out. Soon he paced the tiny waiting room while a team of doctors opened her son's leg and stitched the attaching ligaments. Emergency personnel had pumped blood, antibiotics, and tetanus inoculations into Ben's body. His injuries were not life-threatening, but they worried about the use of the leg. Soon he held Alan's hand as her son was wheeled into surgery. With no basis, he reassured her that Ben would play ball and resume normal activities once everything was healed. Now half asleep in the chair, he heard her voice and she nudged him. Alan. He opened his eyes. Suni's blonde hair was matted and her face flat and ashen. He stood quickly. Anything? One of the nurses just told me they were finishing up Alan. They said it went well and they can't tell about the long-term effect right now. Tears formed in her eyes as she clung on to him and cried into his chest. This should never have happened. You mentioned that Tug used to trap out there. She looked up with red eyes. I know he was trapping over there. Yeah, I saw the beer bottles, said Alan. He left them there? Why would you put a trap near a trail? Damn stupid is what it is. Alan, I don't like to talk about it, but it's been a long haul for me. Tug has made our lives hell. Alan her as a well-dressed man with a trim brown beard, probably one of the administrators, moved at a brisk pace along the corridor's glossy tiles. "'Are you Ben Sadler's parents?' "'I'm his mother,' said Suni, stepping back and wiping the tears from her eyes. The guy glanced at Alan and then addressed Suni. "'We think the operation was successful. Your son's signs are stable, slight fever, but that should subside.' "'What about his leg?' I don't know. I mean, he will walk. Once the cast is removed, a physical therapist can begin an exercise program. As things progress, we'll understand where he is as far as his range of motion and his leg strength. Can he come home tonight? asked Sonny. Yes. We've medicated him to dull the pain and have a prescription to last a few days. And then we'll wean him into an over-the-counter product. You should be able to see him within the hour. Thanks for all your help said Alan, and the doctors. I'm just glad it wasn't worse. He shook their hands and headed back to the corridor. Alan coddled Sudie into his chest again. He placed his hand over her hair as she locked her arms around the bright green jersey Kenny had given him back in the Jeep. His feelings for Sooty went beyond Ben's accident. Holding her generated a deep warm security he hadn't sought, but must have been buried somewhere in his lost thoughts and needs. He sensed a mirror reflection of those same desires as she kept her arms around his chest. Not surprisingly, Tug's motorcycle was not parked in the driveway. Kenny helped Alan bring Ben asleep sleep on a special stretcher up into his room, but Kenny shook his head all the way downstairs. A lot easier with the cast and the stretcher. Alan nodded and looked at the fresh case of brown beer bottles. Able Brewing Company... "'matched to the bottles in the woods. "'Where is he? "'Tug? "'That boy upstairs almost lost his leg, "'and who knows what else could have happened because of that idiot. "'I tell you, Kenny, if you're here right now... "'Kenny pushed his lips together as if he wanted to say more. "'Listen, Alan, maybe this will be the final thing that gets Tug out of here. "'I don't think it's been a day at the beach for soon, he has it. "'Alan headed for the sink and ran the tap. "'He cupped his hands and splashed the cool water across his tired face.' Feel bad for Melba too. She looked pretty upset. I've watched Tug slowly wear that lady down. Has anyone called her at Mrs. Hennessy's? Sunni he did call her from the hospital. Alan wiped his face with a paper towel as Sunni, now changed to jeans and a sweater, moved down the stairs. How is he, Sunni? He's still asleep. He's okay. He's going to be okay. She looked toward the refrigerator. You guys want something to drink? "'No, I'm fine,' said Kenny. "'Listen, we'll keep Amanda for the night.' "'Thanks, Kenny, for all your help.' Kenny shook his head and brushed the air with his hands. She quickly hugged him. "'You want to ride back to Nora Pillsbury's?' asked Kenny. "'I'm waiting for that drink, actually,' said Alan. "'Oh, I'm sorry,' said Sunni. "'I need the walk.' He shook Kenny's hand. "'Thanks for responding the way you did.' "'Just followed orders there, Captain.' Alan grinned as soon he handed him a drink. Here's your drink, Captain. Kenny moved toward the kitchen door. I'll talk to you two tomorrow. I'm glad this day is over. Amen to that, said Alan. Kenny nodded and pushed the screen door. A few seconds later, the jeep started and back from the driveway. Alan drank the large glass of fruit juice as the sound of Kenny's jeep faded. You were thirsty. Soon he took the glass and quickly refilled it. She handed the glass back to Alan. Thanks. No, Alan, thank you, without your leadership out there. I just did what I had to do. Nobody needs accolades for that. Wrong. My boy might not have the use of his leg now if you hadn't acted the way you did. You can get me one of those little plastic trophies, you know, the kind you see in the stores. You can stick some platitude on the base. She moved toward him, but thank you, Alan. Ben will be waking up. I have to get Albert to fill that pain medication. She entered the hall and picked up the phone and was soon talking with Albert. Alan finished the drink and set it in the sink as soon he returned to the kitchen. Albert's going to go down and open the store. Listen, I could go down and fill the thing. I do need to walk. She moved over to the kitchen table and took the prescription in her hand. Albert has all the account numbers. Really, thanks, Alan. You want me to make you something to eat while you're down there? No, no, it's okay. She handed the prescription to him. I'll be back. Promise? Promise. Alan stepped outside the drugstore and stood under the streetlight's warm glow. Albert locked the door. Above and beyond the call of duty, Albert. Oh, no, I just hope Ben's all right. He's a good kid. Well, hopefully we'll get that leg back in shape. My cousin is a physical therapist down in Carnival. Let me talk to her. See what the recovery time might be. Thanks again, Albert. Anytime. Albert bid him goodnight and trundled to his house behind the movie theater. Alan held the little white paper bag and headed back toward the post office. The day had worn him down and he longed for sleep as he turned near the post office's empty flagpole. He thought about Sunnis reiterating his own suggestions about Aunt Amanda's store. stocking the store and advertising it on the web and in magazines was a tempting venture. At the corner of Hillside, he heard a man's voice producing an angry salvo in the night air. He picked up his pace when he saw the Harley-Davidson in Suni's driveway. Through the side window, Tug waved his hands, but his words weren't clear. Alan sprinted up the drive and ripped open the back door. Tug spun around, pausing in his verbal assault as Suni passed his hulking form. Alan, she said in a low voice, taking the bag. I should have known. Now it makes perfect sense. That's why you're still in town, Sackett, playing delivery boy to my wife. Shut up. Big man with big words, said Tug in a louder voice. Booze was in the air. I oughta to bust your ass right back to L.A. Think you've done enough damage already, Tug. Alan, he's drunk. Don't get him mad. Second... You're an oversized fat boy who can't bend over to tie his own shoes. Alan knew Tug would rush him and be dumb enough to swing with his right hand. At the last moment, as soon he pleaded with him to stop, Alan stepped out of the path of Tug's anticipated right cross, lifted his knee into Tug's bulging stomach, and pushed him back into the kitchen. Alan knew he had to reach on this guy by at least six inches. He had to avoid Tug's powerful tattooed biceps. Tug's eyes flared and he clenched his blocked fists. He wouldn't make the same mistake this time, but Alan made the first move, faking with a mild left and then stung Tug's bristly jaw with a swift jab. He followed with two additional jabs before Tug could counterpunch and let loose with a left hook, sending Tug against the wall. One of the wall hangings fell to the floor. "'Alan!' shouted Sunni. "'You left those traps over there, Tug, because you were stone drunk!' You left them over there, and one of them sprung on your son, and he might have died. Tug held his jaw, still stunned. Why don't you mind your own business? This is my family. Then why don't you treat them like a family? Alan stepped closer, but he leaped aside when Tug swung wild, almost falling over. We can solve our own problems without you rekindling some childhood romance. We were friends one summer, said Suni. You keep your mouth shut, Suni. And you don't talk to her like that. Tug bunched his right fist. I told you, Sackett, this is none of your business. I'm making it my business. Get out of here. Can't throw me out of my own house. He grabbed a rolling pin from the back of the stove and held it above his shoulder. His eyes glowed like a large cat stalking its prey. Tug, are you crazy? yelled Suni. She turned toward the stairs as Ben called from the second floor bedroom. "'Tug, get out! I need to get this medication to Ben!' "'You stay right there, Suni. "'I'm going to show you what it's like for this man to be taught a lesson.' Alan leaped through the air and swung his fist into Tug's upper arm. The rolling pin flew across the floor and spun in a circle on the speckled linoleum. Alan pummeled Tug's face and finally unloaded a vicious right cross into his cheekbone and eye. Tug buckled at the knees and collapsed." His eyes rolled upward and he fell on his face. Suni's eyes were stuck open as she stared at him sprawled on the floor. She had the look of a person who had waited years for someone to deck Tug. Her husband, immovable on the floor, she picked up the bag and hurried upstairs to Ben. Tug was still out when Alan used the kitchen wall phone to dial the police department. The officer on the other end was unconcerned until Alan mentioned Tug's name. A cruiser would arrive shortly. Ten minutes later, Alan gave his statement to Georgie Porgie. The stunned tug still was groggy on the floor. Soon he returned to the kitchen, having settled Ben with the new pain medication. Georgie Porgie told Alan he needed help lifting the mammoth tug into the cruiser. Soon I'll call you tomorrow. She nodded, her eyes stricken with fatigue. Alan wanted to stay and hold her through the night. The half conscious tug was handcuffed and cursed Allen as he was led into one of the town's two jail cells. From the inside cell, he further threatened Allen. Allen chose not to go back to Nora Pillsbury's rooming house that night. Georgie Porgy brought Allen into the cruiser and drove him to the general store. Allen listened all the way to the dirt parking lot to stories of Georgie Porgy's boxing days in the service. When Georgie Porgy finally left him, Alan stood alone in the cool night air. He watched the red cruiser lights move over the railroad tracks and turn onto the highway back into town. The store's deep red hues were barely visible in the gray moonlight. The harvested cornfields stood silent, like fallen soldiers in a battle. Alan put his hands on his hips. He had already made the decision to revitalize the store. It had been a choice probably made before his conversation with Suni at the railroad terminal. The change had begun with the first brushstroke on the clapboards. He crossed the lot and climbed into the porch shadows. For the longest time, he dozed in and out of sleep, ending up on the wood porch swing under the bright twinkling stars above the valley. Getting capital for this venture meant selling his cars and the boat. It meant further breaking with his life back in Los Angeles and going deeper into debt. He knew the import buyers and the lines of goods he would bring into the store at 1 a.m. he opened the store and turned on the lights he visualized antiques and higher priced furniture for sale along the mezzanine old fashioned wood shells and wire rim barrels would be filled with candy and lined across from gourmet coffee and jelly preserves knickknacks and crafty items as well as wall clocks would grace the barnboard walls and the floor aisles would house an inventory of cheaper imported goods picture frames lamps and household items He would have a smaller bath shop area and a book section. He climbed the stairs to the mezzanine and peered out over his dream. Shutting off the lights, he retreated down the hall to the small bedroom he had used that summer so long ago. He propped open the rear window and stuck his head into the night. Through the tree branches he traced the pointer stars of the Big Dipper to the North Star. He thought of Suni and wondered how he had forgotten about her all these years. How he had relegated this place to an inconsequential corner of his brain and remembered what it was like to be ten years old, within a summer of no responsibilities or commitment. Those days were gone, but even with his debts looming back in Los Angeles, he sensed he was on the brink of something new, exciting, and exhilarating. Downsized by R.P. Fitton. Chapter 15. Alan woke to a blazing October sun before Mrs. Hennessy arrived. As he lifted a box of old newspapers onto the substantial pile of junk accumulated on the dock, Mrs. Hennessy's old maroon Bonneville 500 slid into the rear parking lot. He checked his watch. In 10 minutes, he'd call Nick Condy and set things in motion back in the city. Mrs. Hennessy, in a brightly flowered dress, carried her brown bag lunch. You're not going to sell the store. Now, how did you know that, Mrs. Hennessy? When you get to be my age, you begin knowing things you don't want to know. It's like your brain has acquired a new space, like a growth. Alan smiled. And how are you this morning, Mrs. Hennessy? Well, I'm fine, but the town is buzzing, Alan. Oh? She glanced down at the cuts on his knuckles. You're a hero. Me? Why? You saved Ben's life. I just brought him back. I didn't... She slowly climbed the dock steps. And you knocked out that loudmouth, obnoxious palooka on his fat tuchus. Well, why she ever married him is beyond me. And everyone else in town. Alan waited for her to continue. She met him about 15 years ago. He was thinner and stationed at the base south of Cornerville. He was real nice to her then. Folks say it's because the service kept him in line. They met at one of them dances out at the base. Suni and her friends used to go down there. Shame. The only good things that came out of it were the kids. He just turned out to be no good. So how the hell are you going to make this store work, Alan? Well, I need some cash. I'm going to sell my cars and other things back in Los Angeles. They moved through the open bay door. Yep, I knew it. I knew the minute I saw you looking at those paint cans up in the loft. I still have a job once you fix this place up. Alan held her shoulder. Mrs. Hennessy, how can I find someone to replace you? Her brown eyes brightened behind her glasses. Oh, you're a charmer, Alan. You're just a charmer. She went out front. He sat on the edge of the roll-top desk and dialed long distance to Nick's Los Angeles office. Every time he called the city, a complex series of connections on the old phone lines reminded him how far he was from his past life. Conti and Associates, answered a new female voice. Alan Sackett, I'm calling for Nick Conti. The line clicked and he wondered if he was still connected. Less than half a minute later, the line clicked again. Nick was in the background on the transmission. Alan, thank God. The terseness in his voice made Alan's stomach flutter. What's the matter, Nick? You gave them the money for October, didn't you? Yes, that was taken care of, and they
1: don't know my office is associated with your problems. I can't say I like my office being involved with these people at all. They cornered your friend Brian. He called me wanting to know where you are. Alan, these people think you're going to leave them high and dry.
0: No, I intend to pay back the loan. I will.
1: I don't have to remind you how much you owe to these people, and you have no means of generating income, do you?
0: Was it my fault I got fired? Who
1: cares whose fault it was? How are you going to pay them back? You can't keep rotating the loan money.
0: Pay them back. Keep the money floating.
1: They're not going to sit back and let you hide up there with their money, Alan. I think they'll kill you if you don't give them assurances.
0: Pay them another 60 grand. The line was silent. Nick, do you hear me?
1: Alan, where are you?
0: In the United States.
1: Your bills are starting to mount up with my office.
0: I want you to sell the cars, the boats, everything.
1: Well, I need the power of attorney, and that's a good move. You can use that money to bring down what you owe to these creeps. Alan, linking up with them...
0: Was a stupid move. I'm aware of that. I'll pay you what I owe you from the proceeds, but I need the rest of the money.
1: You're kidding. Alan, you run up debts like I fill up trash in my dumpster.
0: This is an investment, Nick. I'm in Barclay, Idaho. He shot out the phone number at the store. I came here to sell my aunt's store, but it turns out I'm going to fix it up and make it viable again. Why would you want to do that? Alan laughed and rolled his eyes. Nick, it's a real long story. Email
1: me, power of attorney.
0: I will. Nick, it's imperative they don't know I'm up here.
1: As far as I'm concerned, Alan Sackett has fallen off the face of the earth. Look, you do what you want with the money. But don't let small-town illusions get to
0: you. Find a job and work your way out of this. Alan looked out the window as one of the farm machines mowed through the remaining cornfield, cutting down the rest of the stalks. He stared at the highway along the lake and the behemoth cotton clouds above the mountains. Whether it's an illusion or real, Nick, I'm not going to let it go. During the day, as Alan emptied out the upper loft, Mrs. Hennessy constantly interrupted him with phone calls from people around town. Word of his confrontation with Tug made him a local celebrity. Even Georgie Podgy calling from the police cruiser reinforced his actions. Alan placed a call to Sunny mid morning, but grew concerned when the line continued to ring. Alan shouted Mrs. Hennessy up front. Alan leaned toward the opening. Soony's driving in. He set down the receiver and rushed out front. Mrs. Hennessy looked away and smiled as he passed the counter. Mrs. Hennessy, get those thoughts right out of your head. She likes you, Alan. She always has. Alan smiled as he opened the screen door. Suni's blue truck bounced over the tracks. Alan ran over to the truck and peered in the window. Ben, wearing a teal baseball cap and holding a pair of wood crutches within a mass of couch pillows, waved at Alan. Got a new residence here? Asked Suni from the open window as she cut the engine. The dust swirled behind the truck. Alan half smiled as she opened the door. How is he? Better. Hey, Benji. Despite the circles under his puffy eyes, Ben managed to smile. We caught a bucketful of fish, didn't we, Alan? Yeah, too bad we couldn't eat them. I bet they're pretty ripe by now. Maybe we can go again sometime, if you promise to stay in the boat. I'm just glad you're all right, Benji. He looked at Suni, her arms crossed over her bright jersey. You okay? She nodded and motioned him around the truck. I'll be right back, Ben. Alan, Tug is making trouble. From jail? He's threatening through his attorney to throw us all out of the house. Alan shook his head. He can't do that. Oh, yes, he can. The house is in his name. He used his savings when he was in the Air Force to buy the house. We never put my name on it. He could evict us. What's the matter with that guy? have Charlie McGowan working on a restraining order and something that can keep us in the house at least temporarily. Where's Tug now? Out. Cornerville. I'm afraid for the kids. Amanda and mom are at the store. He'd be a damn fool to try anything with the kids. If he's drunk, he would. Have McGowan get the order and then try and prevent Tug from selling the house. He's just trying to get cash from us. He knows all that. Listen, forget about Tug for a few minutes. You want to see what I've done? Sure, let's go back and help Ben down. Alan climbed into the pickup and guided Ben off the truck bed. Using his crutches, Ben navigated well in the parking lot. Alan and Suni followed him up the front stairs, but Ben was already inside, talking to Mrs. Hennessy. Suni, I called my lawyer in Los Angeles this morning. Once I uh, email the power of attorney to him, he can start selling off some of my assets and ease the pressure. Oh, not by a long shot, but but what it'll do is free up some capital to fix up the store and, and change some of the stock. And I want that train to stop at the station. Not necessarily every train. I know schedules, but sometimes trains stop like buses when they have tourists. Let them wander around, get out, get something to eat. Maybe we can have a concession or a restaurant. I'd have to sell the whole idea to the railroad people. Soon tilted her head, her mouth stuck open in a half-grin. "'What's the matter?' He realized he had not released her hands and did so abruptly. "'Come on, Alan, let's go inside.' "'So you need a food area?' Alan nodded as he opened the screen door. "'I don't think it would be that expensive, Soonie. "'It's like bringing in horses to the trough. "'Get these tourists some liquid and stuff in some feed. "'Yeah.' Ben turned at the counter, balancing his crutches without touching the ground. Alan, look at this. We have an acrobat there soon. You be careful, Ben. You got a lot of healing to do. You really fixing this place up, Alan? Why, you want to work here? What'll I do? What boys usually do. You sweep the floor, hide in the back room, and dip your hand into the candy bin. Can I, Mom? You got to get that leg working first. Alan surveyed the mezzanine again. We'll collect everyone's junk furniture, everything they might want to pitch, and just haven't gotten around to it. Well, I've got an old table and a storage chest I should have dumped at the landfill, said Mrs. Hennessy. See, that's what I'm talking about. Tourists love that stuff. What about the shelves? asked Suni. All that wood from upstairs I piled on the dock. I can build aisle shelves, slap on some stain, and make it look real rustic. Suni touched his arm. Alan, it is rustic. I suppose it is, but I'll get those built and I'll find some barn boards. There's enough of that on old buildings around the town. Good, good. I'll do over the walls behind the counter, said Alan, stepping to his left, where he planned to put the main counter. Well, guess what I have? I own a store, remember? I have Dad's old registers and some glass cases. Pricing guns. Now you're talking, Suni. I can do all that before I order one piece of merchandise. mean, after you liquidate. Let me get to a computer to email out the power of attorney. I've got a hot tip. I think it's time to sell. Downsized by R.P. Fitton. Chapter 16. Alan felt a temporary relief when the money from the sale of his cars and boat was wired from Los Angeles into Kenny's bank. Alan planned to utilize that money to order merchandise for the store and not to divert it to Roscoe. Nick would pay November's payment to Roscoe from the original loan, but voiced concern about two well-dressed men who suddenly appeared in his office at the beginning of November. They badgered him about Allen's whereabouts. He threatened them with legal action, enough to get them out of the office, but not to stop their search for Allen. Allen stopped by the rooming house to balance his bills and to move his things to the general store. He tried to sift his thoughts and arranged an interesting presentation to the townspeople that evening. In his thoughts, he wondered how a town with limited cell phone service might react to new technology. Nora moved out of the kitchen and stood next to the wood stove in the main room. She crossed her arms and raised her brows and grinned. What's this I hear about you speaking to the town tonight, Alan? I am. He lifted his laptop into the air. We're going to talk about websites. Sounds like a lecture on spiders. Same principle. I'm going to try and get people up to the store as they browse the web. We could do the same thing for any old house in town. Bring people up to the area. But what about the people in town? Will they go for it? Well, if it means money, what's left of the local economy they will do it. It's quite simple, said Alan. Nora raised her hands as if she was being robbed. Beyond me, I have trouble getting dinner prepared. How's Suni doing with the house? I can't believe that Tug would evict his own family. Well, he may not be able to. Suni's meeting with Charlie McGowan right now. I think they have Tug cornered. He may not be able to come back into the house at all. You know, with the divorce pending. Tug won't take kindly to that. That reminds me of a quote. I am accustomed to pay back men in their own coin. Otto Van Bismarck. Now that's a good quote. Thanks again, Nora. You come over and have some coffee and muffins on the house when we open up. They know if that train stops here, people are going to need my rooms. Start drawing up the plans. Oh, I've been thinking about it. She looked toward her at her stove in the kitchen. Oh, water's boiling, but I'll tell you what. If you need a supplier for baking, absolutely. If one of your people need lodging, we can work a deal. Days worth of free goods for every customer. I can use the business. Sounds viable. My water. Good luck at your meeting. Excuse me. No problem. Alan picked up his laptop. Jacob smoked his pipe as he read in the parlor. Good evening, Jacob. Alan. Fall air is out there tonight. Alan, I want to talk to you. Heard what you've been trying to do with your aunt's store, and I think it's a splendid idea. You've captured the past while maintaining the entrepreneurial spirit. Well put. Well put. Maybe you'll put Historic Barclay on the map, said Jacob. I like that. Historic Barclay. I've thought about people coming up here and appreciating the town. There might be something profitable in it. I'm a historian. But without money, history is lost. Alan nodded. Well, I've thought about expanding the renovations as I've been pounding the shelves together and staining the inside of the store. Get people up here on the train and have inns and maybe historic sites for them to visit. It would spawn the whole town as an economic unit. But you can't give people a phony history. That wouldn't last long. Exactly. And I know something about the history of this area. Oh, that's an understatement, said Alan. After my wife died, I came back here to read my books and die. But you've revitalized more than the store, Alan. You've changed my attitude. Me? Your outlook. I hear people talking about your energy and your positive outlook. Oh, you'll convince them to revitalize that railroad station tonight, and they'll probably be pounding hammers in the morning. Oh Jacob, you're very gracious. I want to aid you in any way I can, and I would be available to answer any historical questions to your customers. What I really want to do is get a detailed summary of this town, its history, the history of the houses. I think there's an interest in things historical now. People want to travel to places, even during a recession, where they can sense history and relax on vacation or a weekend away. Alan stroked his chin. You've just summed it up more eloquently than I've been thinking about as I've been working in the store. I could use your input. Just come over to the store. We may ask you to stock a few shelves or grab a paintbrush there, Professor. It's been a long time since I've done an internship, he said as he stood and removed his pipe. He shook Alan's hand. Let's bring some history back to this town. A website, said Alan, sitting at the town hall auditorium desk. Fifteen or twenty people had gathered around his gray laptop and studied a crisp photograph of the store surrounded by promotional literature. More townspeople were scattered about the hall. People will be able to browse on this promo anywhere around the country or around the world for that matter. There's a number connected to the store's second line. So if I can get them up here, they can redeem the coupons inside the store. All right, everyone, let's sit down, said Kenny Baines, chairing the meeting. After Alan speaks, we'll have to deal with the dog problem again. That brought a series of groans from the assemblage. There's a whole pack of dogs running wild in back of town hall. They greeted me with growls and bare teeth when I came in. Maybe they'll be working against you in the next election, yelled Georgie Porgy from down back. They are welcome to this gavel, George. They'll all have to be on leashes first. Kenny studied some paperwork as he continued speaking. Now, what Allen wants to do is something I think will be good for this town. Might bring back some of that old-time flavor that we all used to know before the plant moved out. But I won't steal Allen's thunder. I'll let him explain what he wants to do and how somebody sitting in Honolulu can stare at his ad inside their computer. The old and the new meet. Alan? Alan stood and looked over the auditorium's yellow cinder block walls. This building is very old. The auditorium seats are worn, and if you look up top, the paint is beginning to peel. Kenny tells me the roof needs repair, and Barkley has no money, I originally came here tonight to talk about refurbishing the railroad station with the selfish motive of bringing people to my Aunt Amanda's store. But I think there's more at stake here. It's no secret what the plant closing did to this town. Everyone had to tighten their belts and many people have left. I want my plans for the general store to spread. If you were up here earlier, you may have seen the website. I'm convinced, but I might be proven wrong, But I think that the website and maybe future magazine advertising and mailings can bring people up to Barclay. Only as recently as tonight, as I began thinking about the town itself, every one of our buildings has a history. We have a rich, rustic valley with many lakes. I want to use that general store as a springboard for this entire town. Revitalize the old homes, the inns, places of lodging, restaurants, and shops. Make Route 11 out there the historic highway. Let people share our heritage and make some money, too. I don't say that from a greed perspective. When people are working and times are good, lifestyles can be lifted. It's a joint partnership. If all this is to be accomplished, and please don't press me for details, it all begins with getting the train to stop here. I've already talked with the people in San Francisco. They emailed me specifications, that we comply with certain regulations as well as spruce the place up. If we all work together, we can get that train to stop here like it used to and improve all our lives. I'll be out at the station first thing in the morning. 8 a.m. sharp. We'll see what we can come up with. Thank you. The applause started slowly but built to a respectable level. Soon he moved through the auditorium door, her face tense as she carried a bunch of file folders. "'How are we going to pay for this rehab?' asked one of the finance committee members next to Kenny. "'You mean the station?' asked Alan, glancing at Sunni. He wondered if McGowan had bad news about her house. "'The same way you people were so generous with your junk. Now, I've made it clear that I will give you all a commission on what I sell down at the mezzanine. What we have to do at the station will be a town effort. Donations in time, labor, and whatever materials we may find.' I know once we fix up that building, I can get the train to stop here. I think the refurbishing of old houses along the highway, any museum or historical thing, will have to be a combined effort. Any lodgings or restaurants will have to be a private investment. But that's all in the future. I want you to take a few minutes to think about the station. That is the vital link. Get the railroad in here and we can accomplish great things for this town. Well, there's always backup funds, said Kenny. That's true, but I think we should first get this off the ground. Now I'll let Kenny address the dog issue and whatever else is on the agenda. But talk about that station. I will give my all to this. Whatever I can do. He leaned over to Kenny. How did I do? Alan, you give a speech like that, it sounds like something out of Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. You offer everybody hope for a better life. You think we're going to turn that down? Besides, we all like you. As Kenny took the microphone, Alan hurried up the sloping auditorium aisle. Soon, holding the folders over her chest, smiled. When did you come up with that brainstorm? While I was talking to Jacob at Nora Pillsbury's. He was a college professor. How did you make out with Charlie? Tug cannot throw us out to the curb. Tug was told by phone in Carniville, He's threatening to take the kids. He's threatening me. He even threatened you. Well, that I believe. Charlie read him the restraining order, and then he hung up. I got the mom and the kids at Mrs. Hennessy's house. Maybe he'll just fade away. I don't know. Oh, I meant to tell you. Mrs. Hennessy said that Gorelick Trucking called. The import shipment from Los Angeles is arriving tomorrow, and UPS called. The wall clocks will be here, too. Tomorrow morning, the website goes live told Mrs. Hennessy to answer all calls and take down information. She already bought a new pad of yellow-lined paper. Alan nodded. Well, we'll store it as a customer base on a disc and follow up. He stared down front, knowing he was staking everything into this venture. But more than that, he was chancing his reputation in the town. When are you going to start the rehab? Morning. I have to get Ben off to school, but then I'll join you after I open up the store. Alan put his arm around her. And don't worry about Tug. I think he'll be gone real soon. Downsized by R.P. Fitton. Chapter 17. With notebook in hand, Alan walked down the dirt lane in the early morning chill. Back on the dock, he had organized all the materials donated to rehabbing the station. He zipped up his jacket. The autumn light covered the decaying station's broken red tile roof across the highway. Replacing those exact tiles would be difficult, and the extent of leakage was unknown. He would need someone to do a complete inspection of the building. He trotted over the highway's cracked asphalt. The station lot needed paving. In his mind, he imagined the train approaching from the south and emptying a fresh carload of passengers. Porters would appear and whisk off cartloads of suitcases and luggage. Maybe a restaurant would thrive near the station. Couples, families, and a wide variety of people would revel in the brochure's description of historic Barclay, Idaho, and they would have made reservation in one of the town's numerous motels or inns. But on this morning, he was alone, and his sandy footsteps echoed against the dirty stucco walls. He checked his watch. In another 20 minutes, everyone would arrive, and they would talk about the future. At the entrance, he pulled back the plywood and the nails made a dragging sound. He ripped the sheet from the door and cast it onto the cement, raising the dust. Hints of an oak varnish smell, once so prevalent, drifted through the morning air. Kids had lit fires on the floor, but portions of the glossy wood reflected the outside light. He strayed past the ticket counter's brass bars as the cooler air trickled in from outside. The heavy oak benches were gone, but new ones were easily constructed or even bought on the phone the railroad people had told him that station accessibility to everyone was necessary. That meant ramps outside and a few minor changes inside. Regulations existed so people would be brought far enough back from the train. Alan smiled wondering how some regulation written in faraway Washington would stop someone up here from walking across the path of an oncoming train. A cracked plastic coke sign hung lopsided on the pitted wall below thick green glass panels, and the rollaway cover, pulled down after hours, remained intact. He eyed his watch again, crossed the room, and pushed on the window plywood. He dislodged the piece and sent it sailing into the parking lot, revealing a wonderful view of the mountains and the abandoned plant in the distance. Daylight altered the dreary interior, bringing forth details on the oak woodwork and the faded paint sign on the plaster. He gazed upward at the fans below the wood buttress ceiling. Water damage was not as extensive as he had thought. With the proper amount of labor and materials, he might have this place ready in a month. Through the window opening, a car motor reverberated in the parking lot and across the empty walls. The engine was cut as he walked across the station. Someone shut a car door, and a cherry tobacco pipe aroma drifted inside. Jacob, wearing a wide-brim hat, carried a green satchel as he moved into the opening. I see the renovation has commenced. Well, good morning, Professor. You're here bright and early. I thought it might be a good idea to bring some original plans and photographs of the station. How'd you get that? The library, young man. I copied some pages from a few books. There are extensive collections and actual photos in the library. This station is over a hundred years old. Really? asked Alan as he looked back toward town. He checked his digital watch again. It was built one year after the Silver Strike, the Osborns and the Gatlins. They hired an architect out of Boise and brought in materials from around the world. Barclay was going to be the mecca of the West, Till they realized the vein wasn't as extensive as they thought. The station was built, and many of those who made their money built houses along the highway and the lake. When people died off in the 1920s and 30s, many of the kids left. The houses were not well maintained. The war really kept the area alive. Army used the lake for landing troops. They even paid for repairs to this station. They housed some of the upper personnel in the original homes. After the war, things were like they are now until the plant came in in 1953. For many decades, this place did well, and you know the rest. I heard you gave a short speech last night, Alan. I heard it. It was concise, very good. Alan smiled and enjoyed the professor's critique. While I believed in what I was saying, I had nothing to back it up. But maybe we can revitalize this place. I know from a historic point of view, there is something to offer. You have the business instincts, Alan. I can feel it, Jacob. I know it will work. People want a bond with the past. They want to feel like they're linked with it. They want to escape from their everyday pressures and monotony. Yeah, I think it will work. He stepped outside and crossed his arms and looked at the mountains. I think our volunteers have deserted us. Oh, it's only 8.15, Alan. Give him time. Things move differently up here. You know that. I heard your website goes online today. You should start hearing some rumbling about your store. I sure hope so. I have a lot riding on this. He leaned against the stucco, sun in his eyes, and stared down at the empty highway. His mind drifted back to Nick and another payment to Roscoe. No matter what success he might find up here, he would still have to face up to what he owed. By nine o'clock, Alan counted eleven cars in the station parking lot. He brought the assemblage of local citizens through the interior. Most people remember the station's better days and audit specific suggestions about revitalization. Alan kept looking for Suni's truck. You're going to need paint, said Albert. Bucket's full. Gonna cost money, Alan. The bald-headed, bushy-browed Pop Ridden, arriving from the lumberyard, called out, Oh, we have paint. Yeah, for a price, said Hershey, cigarette burning as he leaned against the building. You know, we don't operate like real estate people, Hershey, smiled Pop. Hershey pointed his index finger at the old man. Touché, Pop, touché. We'll accept all donations, even if we have to go door to door, said Ellen. It's important that everyone play a part in what we're doing. The parson from the church stepped forward. In his off-duty beige jacket. "'Maybe we should get an architect.' "'If it doesn't cost money,' said one of the accountants from Town Hall. "'What do you think, Alan?' asked the parson. "'Alan turned from the opening. "'Bill is right. The building is built, "'and we basically know what we need to refurbish. "'We might want to start making a list of what we need to do "'and what we need donated or purchased.' "'I can do that,' said Bill. "'Good. That'll get us organized.' Mrs. Hennessy waved her arms and crossed the highway like a running duck. Alan stepped through the opening. Excuse me. Alan! The sun hit his face. What is it, Mrs. Hennessy? Alan, the house! The house! What house? He reached her at the edge of the highway and held her shoulders. What are you talking about, Mrs. Hennessy? Suni's house! It's on fire! A cold sheet enveloped his skin and he thought about Tug. She all right? Is Ben and Amanda? They're all at my house. A small plume of gray smoke arose above the hills back toward town. I need to use your car, Mrs. Hennessy. Yes, yes. The key is in my pocketbook under the counter. Thank you, he said, sprinting back to the store. He jumped onto the porch. Soon he would have to endure watching all her belongings enveloped in the inferno. He quickly pulled out Mrs. Hennessy's pocketbook dug out the car keys, and shot out the back door. He pushed the Bonneville's engine all the way up the highway and ran the red light at the fork in the road. Cars ahead blocked the street after the post office turned. Allen pulled to the side of the road, leaped out, and started along the sidewalk. Red and amber lights like a dance hall strobe spun on the neighborhood houses, and three fire trucks were positioned near the orange fire plugs. Black hoses dissected the street. A good-sized crowd had gathered, but he did not see Suni. Firefighters clad in heavy brown coats and yellow firemen's helmets gripped the hoses and sprayed prodigious amounts of gushing water toward the darker smoke pouring from the upper windows. Their radios snapped and darting men in heavy coats shouted out orders. Suni stood rigid, arms crossed and face unflinching. Within a long line of people, Melba, Ben, and Amanda faced the flames. Soony turned slowly and her face tightened as Alan moved forward. Are you all right, Sunie? She nodded and hugged him. He did it. I know he did it. Alan looked back at the fire shooting through the kitchen windows. They said it was something in the kitchen, but we haven't been in there. Thank God we we're all at Mrs. Hennessy's house. Where is he? asked Alan. She shook her head. Oh, I'm sure he's long gone. All our things are in there, Alan. Alan walked with his arm around her back toward the others. He tried to reassure Melba. Amanda and Ben both held him. Listen, they've got it under control. They got it in time. The charred shingles and the darkened windows, still continuously dust by water, indicated irreparable damage. Alan was more confused and angry at Tug's capacity for revenge, and he sensed, despite the tragedy, Tug might have fled the area but if it was proved that he was involved in setting the fire, warrants would be issued for his arrest. Alan, I need to send the kids above the store today if I could. Sure, you do whatever you need to do, Suni, whatever you want me to do. I think that a bright flash of orange light preceded an ear-deafening blast from the kitchen, and the rear quarter of the house was ripped apart, sending debris across the road. Everyone dove for cover. Seconds later, the back of the house collapsed inward. Sparks, embers, and more debris sprung upward. He held Sunni, but sprang forward and rushed across the street. In the confusion on the side lawn, he saw two men, fallen, half conscious, and another against a tree. Someone pointed toward the rubble, where the back porch had stood only seconds before. Tommy Bange is under that porch! Tom is under that porch! Smoke spewed rapidly, almost horizontal now, as the whole house crackled. Alan wrapped his arms in his jacket and held it up against the intense heat. Soon he yelled from the street as he crawled on his stomach across the lawn. In the dim haze, he first saw the black boots. He grabbed Tom's ankles, coughing as he yanked against the weight of the collapsed porch. From his stomach, he was not getting the proper leverage, and as his clothes heated from the fire, he knew he would have to stand within the smoke and make one attempt to pull the firefighter out. With his hand firmly grasped around Tom's ankles, Alan breathed in the air, stood, and propped his body as he brought Tom back. Someone else appeared to his left, and they dragged Tom out of the smoke and onto the front lawn. Alan fell back onto the lawn, gagging as more firefighters rushed to Tom. A man offered Alan oxygen, but he pushed them back. He felt Suni's hand on his shoulders as he sat near the hose. The fireman quickly lifted Tom onto a stretcher and carried him to the firehouse stand. The other men were back at the hoses, again dousing the debris, but the mysterious explosion in the kitchen had destroyed the house. Downsized by R.P. Fitton. Chapter 18. Albert waited on a customer back at the pharmacy counter as Alan finished his sandwich and held a warm coffee cup in his hands. He lifted the liquid to his lips as soon he crossed Main Street from Benson's. The wind blew back her blonde hair. She looked pale and drained. Ellen stood at the counter and then went over and opened the front door. Sunny. She nodded her head and pushed her thin lips together. The Kids are over the store with Mrs. Hennessy. Connerville police called. Tug left Connerville this morning. He, he told everyone in the bar last night that he was going to burn down the house, but nobody believed him. When he's drunk, he's always melting off. God, I never thought he'd go this far. He wanted us dead. They found the remains of our grill's propane tank in the kitchen. He put it in there, Alan, so it would blow up. They'll find him soon. He, how far can he get? Not far enough. How are the kids taking all this? She shook her head. I think the kids are fine. My mother is scared to death. He's going to come back. He won't come back. Believe me, Tug is gone. Alan escorted her to one of the stools. Albert returned from the pharmacy counter and poured some coffee for Suni. And don't go putting change on the counter. Thanks, Albert. She drank the hot coffee. Just what the doctor ordered. Anything I can do? He asked, glancing at the new customer at the end of the counter. You let me know. Thank you. Listen, Suni, why don't you take some time off? asked Alan. I have to run the store this afternoon, Alan. Alan? I'll run the store. No, no need to. No, I need to get away. Maybe close up the A-frame for the season. I can get my thoughts together. She put her forehead against his propped arm and closed her eyes. Alan held her other hand as she spoke. I have to go through the remains. All the kids' pictures. Everything we own. I mean what I said about running the store. Go over to the general store. Head upstairs. Relax and sleep. Do whatever you have to do. You really watch the store? Sure. I'd enjoy it. She reached in her jeans pocket and handed him the store key. Then she embraced him and kept her arms around him. Thank you, Alan. Thank you for everything. You'll rebuild. She stood and shook her head. I don't know. I don't know if I want to rebuild. You don't have to decide today. Alan stood and took her arm. Come on, let's get over to the general store. Be with your kids and your mother needs you. Alan waved at Albert as they stepped into the cooler air. She unlocked the clothing store. She brought him through the smell of new children's clothes up front, mumbled something about what was on sale, but then she stood dazed as she walked through a small stockroom toward her truck in the parking lot. You sure you want to do this? I can shut the store down. "Sunny, get some rest. I'll be by later. Hopefully I'll have people calling about the website. She nodded and started the truck. Again, she thanked him and drove across the parking lot. Alan watched her leave and went back into the store. He placed a call to Mrs. Hennessy, checked on the kids, and advised her to make sure that sunny rested. Then he sat at Benson's front counter. The green walls surrounded numerous departments. The place didn't look that much different from 30 years ago. Albert had mentioned helping sunny Alan took out the phone book. For the next few hours, between ringing up a mounting flow of customer purchases, he called people in town and set up a drop-off in the town hall for blankets, clothing, and essentials. The huge green clock's black hands crept past four when Albert crossed Main Street and entered the store. You've been busy. I see the people coming and going. I think people are trying to help out. Alan, a gentleman from Los Angeles, your attorney, called the pharmacy. Nick Conti? Yeah. Hey, I see people are dropping things off at the town hall. There are good people in this town, Albert. Albert. Albert nodded and headed back to his store. Alan lifted the phone and quickly dialed long distance to Los Angeles, wondering if Nick had settled the lawsuit. After briefly talking to the secretary, Nick came on the line. Tell me, Nick, that Lambert's finally caved in.
1: I'm expecting a response, but Alan, I didn't want to call you until we were sure. What's the matter? Well, it may be nothing, but but things might have been looked at or even copied.
0: I don't understand, Nick.
1: Someone broke into this office last night. It appeared they went through your file. I really don't know for sure, neither do the cops. Who? You know who. Those people you had lend you all that money. If somehow they know where you are, Alan, they'll find you. And I think they'll demand their money because you're not working.
0: Alan exhaled and held his chin. I don't have any extra money for them, only what's left in the loan.
1: You better pray to God they don't know where you are. Where's the money from the boat and the cars?
0: It's invested. Nick said nothing for a long time.
1: It's your ass, Alan. If anything breaks in the lawsuit, I'll call the general store or the drugstore. Good luck, you're gonna need it.
0: Alan set down the phone and with a churning stomach, wandered across the carpet to the front window. Darkness had fallen rapidly over the mountains and hills. His stomach pains only exacerbated the encroaching feeling that Roscoe might eventually figure out where he had fled. Even if the general store turned a profit, it would take years to pay back the loan. Maybe the thieves in Nick's office only found peripheral information and would not locate him. He shut down the lights to Benson's and locked the front door. His only concern now is getting supplies to SUNY back at the general store. Kenny Baines drove a large dump truck filled with the afternoon purchases from Benson's as well as bags of other supplies down the highway toward the general store. Several times he thanked Alan for helping save Tom. I didn't know bank presidents could drive a truck, said Alan, unzipping his coat. Kenny ground the gears when he shifted the truck. We can't. I'm worried about Tug, Kenny. You know, sorry they lost the house, but if it means Tug being out of her life, he never treated her well. I'm glad you told her we're on our way over. Hey, we're talking attempted murder. Never thought he'd try anything like that, said Kenny, signaling right for the general store. Mrs. Hennessy reports no phone calls concerning the website. I don't think we have to worry about changing the rustic character of the area. It's only the first day. You can check if anybody's browsed, right? Yeah, if there are no hits on the site, I might as well put the for sale sign back up. The large truck rumbled over the tracks and down the dirt road. Around the back of the store, Alan hopped from the cab and guided Kenny back toward the dock. The truck inched diagonally to the concrete edge. Alan scurried up the stairs and opened the back door before flipping on the outside lights. He lifted the huge bay door along the track. He heard Suni's voice in the store as other lights came on. Alan? She walked forward with her arms folded. Kenny had already set the boxes on the dock. What the? Compliments of the people of Barclay. She raised her hands to her mouth and slowly moved forward. I don't believe it. Believe it, you're back in business, said Alan. See all those Benson's bags? People came in the store in droves this afternoon, Suny. Her eyes moistened. They bought your merchandise for you and the kids. This is unbelievable. Kenny nudged his side. Don't just stand there, Alan. Come on. I think I'm being commandeered into service. Alan escorted Kenny into the store. He turned briefly. The pyramid of donations filled the back room near the bay door. Kenny looked around the fully stocked general store. Alan, I can't believe what you've done here. The smaller impulse items are down here. They moved along the packed shelves. Kenny held some wooden kitchen utensils. You have unique things here, Alan. How did you know how to buy all this? All those years at Lambert's gave me a few connections. And you have your gourmet coffees near the counter. Kenny smelled the packages. Almond, you aren't giving this stuff away. Well, I don't want this to be a discount store. I want quality and service. They reached the unfinished counter to the right. People are going to be able to eat over here. No big restaurant. You just get off the train, shop, and get a bite to eat. And upstairs, your clocks. And furniture. Antiques. Alan motioned him up the stairs to the mezzanine. All of it will be listed on the site, and maybe a catalog later. If you want certain items, you can order them by mail or on the net. Smart. And when they come in, they sign the guest book. But all the names and addresses go into a database so we can contact them later. And all this without a loan? Well, I sold off some things, said Alan, leaning on the wood railing. Nick's phone call still bothered him. All that money lingered like an invisible, growing cancer. As long as he had anonymity up here, he could keep paying Roscoe. But the store would not provide enough money, and he would reach a point where he couldn't make the monthly payment. Soon he appeared in the residence doorway at the end of the mezzanine. Coffee and sandwiches. I have to get back. Jill's probably wondering where I am. Can he have a cup of coffee, will you? Alan looked back into the store. Not only did he worry about Tug, the ever-present fear of Roscoe somehow driving into town and placing a gun to his head. Alan? Alan managed to smile but shut off the lights. I'm coming, I'm coming. Ben watched TV on the sofa. Hey, Alan. Benji, you behaving yourself? Are we going to be living here? Staying here, said Suni quickly as she brought the coffee cups to the table. A full plate of roast beef sandwiches and chips were positioned on the table. Where's Amanda? asked Alan. In the bedroom, and Mrs. Hennessy left you a note. Oh, Mrs. Hennessy never fails to put in writing what she's been unavailable to tell me. He looked toward the closed bedroom door. Excuse me. Not saying anything, Alan. She won't eat. Alan nodded and slowly turned the doorknob. Amanda stared out the window. He closed the door and took a few steps into the bedroom. Amanda, you want something to eat? She slowly shook her head. When I was ten years old, this room was my room one summer. I used to look out that window for hours. Amanda kept her back toward him. My own father tried to kill us. Yes, he did. Do you know how that feels? No, I don't. I need to see a psychiatrist or be on medication. Alan moved the chair next to her and sat down. Listen. I can't feel the pain of what Tug did, nor do I have any idea what it means to lose your house. But I do know something about life. She turned, the tears streaking down her cheeks. I need help. Therapy. Alan shook his head and held her hand. What you need is time, Amanda. Time to heal. You could spend the next hundred years talking to some guy who claims he has all the answers to problems in your life. Maybe you'd luck out and get somebody good, but Amanda... The only answers come from inside you. He wiped her cheeks with his hand. My friends, everyone in town, they must think, who cares what they think? There's more to you as a person than the opinions of people who have nothing better to do than to sit in judgment. You're going to come out of this, and so is your mother and brother. He'll be back. You don't know my father. No, he may be a lot of things, but I don't think he's stupid. He's not going to hang around, Barkley. He's long gone. I hope so. She threw her arms around him. Alan held her and caught sight of Suni in the doorway. He winked and faced Amanda. Come on, you need something to eat. Okay. Thanks, Alan, she said, hugging him again. The kids were asleep for a half an hour and the TV news had just ended. Alan brought Suni a glass of orange juice at the table. Alan, thank you for what you said to Amanda, and for everything else. All in a day's work, he said, scooping up Mrs. Hennessy's note from the counter. Oh, no. What's the matter? No calls about the website. That doesn't work. I'm sunk. One thing I've noticed about you since you came back. You always come up with a million alternatives. You're not sunk. Alan pictured Roscoe in the Hollywood Boulevard coffee shop at two in the morning. SUNY, I owe money. "'It's only money.' Alan nodded. Telling Suni about Roscoe would accomplish nothing. "'Are you going to rebuild?' "'No, I don't think we will. Plus, the place was in his name. It's pretty complicated.' Alan sipped on the juice. "'You could always live on the island.' "'I wish I could. It's getting nippy out. I'll have to go over and close that A-frame down for the winter.' "'You need help?' "'Yeah, I was going over this weekend.' Another expedition to the island. Kenny can drive the boat this time. She said nothing as she faced him. No, Alan, it's just you and me. A quick tinge swept across his stomach as he finished the juice. He looked across the table into her bright green eyes and and curly hair. In many ways, she was still the girl he knew from that summer. Either I have this weird school kid crush on you or I'm falling in love with you. Oh, you're in love with me, all right. What? You were in love with me when we were on the island. As a matter of fact, Alan, you were in love with me at the train station when you talked about fixing up the store. She rounded the table. As she slowly slid her arms around him, her warm lips sent tingles over his body. Her verdant eyes linked into his mind as they broke. I knew this might happen when Charlie McGowan told everybody you were getting the store. And the first day you were back, I was in the store and I turned around. I saw you again, Alan, after all those years. There were so many feelings and I don't know why either. This time he kissed her. It was a longer, deeper kiss and he held her tighter, lifting her slightly off the ground. How did I get back here? How did I find you? She spoke with her tongue pressed against her cheek. You were destined to come back here, Alan Sackett, from the time you left the station so long ago, speeding away on that train. All your roads led back to Barkley. And guess what? I don't think you're ever going to leave. Downsized by R.P. Fitton. Chapter 19 Alan carried a hefty armful of hardwood up the trail as the sun cracked through a break in the dark clouds. Last night, the Washington State Police caught Tug speeding on his Harley Davidson through the Cascades a week after he burnt Sunni's house to the ground. The FBI and Treasury agents were involved now. They had him locked securely at a federal facility. He had Sunni come to the island for the day. Smoke wandered upward from the A-frame stone chimney. Yesterday, the eBay shipment arrived at the store. He had expedited an order of three table model mahogany victrollers from the 1920s an additional shipment of 78 rpm vinyl records arrived yesterday morning late yesterday afternoon he and kenny had brought over a dozen records and the victrola to the a-frame and wrapped it in a blue tarp in the wood-lined open room Suni, in her jeans and green flannel shirt greeted him at the sliders don't you know how hard it was not to pull back that tarp i thought you'd break in he said smiling give me a hint Alan set the wood on the stone hearth and warmed his hands to the blazing fire. You'll like it. That's no hint, she said, putting her arms around him. You don't plug it in. Well, that works well since we don't have any electricity out here. Then her eyes glowed. She raised your finger. I know what it is. No, you don't. Oh, yes, I do, Alan Sackett. Alan moved over to the tarp. Well, even though you say you know, you'll have to close your eyes. I can do that. He moved one of the folding chairs in front of the tarp and tapped the seat. She sat down and smiled. Your eyes? She closed her eyes and smiled. Alan released the red bungee cords and unwrapped the ropes. He lifted the records wrapped in white paper from the top of the mahogany. In a few seconds, he had propped open the Victrola and tore the papers back. He set a blue-labeled 78 record on the green felt turntable. The steel needle scraped against his finger. Then he held Suni's wrists and guided her hand to the wood handle on the side. It's a small rolling pin, she said, her eyes still shut. Nice try. And I thought you knew. I do. Again, nice try there, smart one. It's a Victrola. Alan's head snapped to the right. She opened her bright eyes. How did you know? The smell. The mahogany smell. I remember it. She threw her arms around him and kissed him how did you get here so soon? I have my connections. She gripped the handle and after several turns lifted the chrome arm up. With a dexterity like a gifted surgeon, she slowly lowered the needle onto the outer edge of the vinyl. The steel lever releases the turntable spring. Oh, I never would have guessed, she said, flipping the lever with her index finger. A scratchy crackling merged into a jazzy instrumental medley that echoed around the stone fireplace and stained A-frame wood. He took her hand and they faced each other. Then they danced across the wood floorboards and the braided rug. He swung her in front of the lake sliders and brought it across the floor in front of the fire. He brought her in closer, pressing her warm frame against his chest. As the record spun and played out, he kissed her and they fell to the rug in front of the fireplace. morning sun cut through the snow-laden pine branches. Across the smooth lake, smoke rose into the blue sky from chimneys and furnaces and snow-covered Barkley. In front of the sparkling fire, soon he looked him in the eye. You ever wonder how those little things in your life are like pivotal points? Things we don't even realize at the time. You mean like me coming up here that summer? Sort of. Or if I hadn't gone down to Connerville to a dance where I met Tug. You write little things every day that send your life slowly marching in a different direction. I know, she said. It doesn't take much to alter your life. Sometimes there's no turning back. There's always turning back if people have the guts to do it. But first, you have to acknowledge where you are in your life. and That's a very difficult thing to do. She kissed him again. Alan, Sackett, you never should have left here. I wish I hadn't. But at 10 years old, Suny, I wasn't about to move to Idaho unless Aunt Amanda adopted me. She did me. I was very close to her. She was born on Christmas Day during the Second World War, above the old grocery store. It's not there anymore. She met Uncle Ned. Her license ran out, and she was at the DMV. Ned was there to register his truck. On that day, that very day, he lived in Connerville. It changed everything. We wouldn't be here now. Alan nodded. How many of those pivotal points take place every day? Lots. Your people came up here during the silver strike. You told me that summer that you owned a silver mine. Did I say that? I thought you did, and I thought I would marry you and be rich. She lay back on the sheet and laughed. I didn't know that. True, but then I figured my baseball card collection would make me rich. Let me tell you something, Alan Sackett. The most important thing was the mystery of that mine and having the baseball card collection. Just like on Amanda's store, it's not the money. Oh? Nope. And you can't even see it. You talk money, but there's so much more to you, Alan. I think you know me more than I know myself. I do. Alan grinned and mulled over what she had just said. What about your family? How did they come out here? My great-granddad, Benson, he came out here because of the silver strike from New York, near Rochester. Grandmother worked in Gatlin's home as a maid, scrubbing and cleaning. Mother remembered her helping her do the floors. Granddad started looking for silver, but ended up selling prospector's clothing. His first shop was near where the movie theater is now. I heard that theater still runs cartoons before the main feature. We need to go to the movies. I think that's a possibility. He put his arm around her and she leaned her head on his shoulder. As he thought about Roscoe, he closed his eyes and tightened his brow. Paying back the money seemed increasingly difficult, and in time they might find him in Barclay. Soon he stared at him when he opened his eyes. The store still bothering you? Three hits on the world wide web, no phone calls. No hits, no runs, no errors. Alan grinned and shook his head. And here we are. Your house is in ruins. My investment is failing. But you know what? Know what? I don't care. Soon he smiled. That sounds like the name of a 1920s song. I have Victrola's for the store and some more vinyl records. Great, and you'll have your railroad station. Last week, volunteers weatherproofed the place. It's starting to look like a station again. And with that stuff you got people to donate, they'll have it done in no time. And then maybe you and Jacob can convince everyone to turn Barkley into a historic tourist mecca. Alan stared across the lake and the glistening shore. It all depends on the general store and the station. I have to convince people to come all the way up here to Barkley, Idaho. Alan, you're the guy. It may have seemed in the beginning of the book that Andy, having lost his job and without the prospect of finding another, may have left his marketing and retail abilities back in the office at Lambert's in Los Angeles. Taking his aunt's store and revitalizing it allows him to draw from experience and intuition to form something new and vital, right along by his side is Suni. And that's when Tug decides to strike with a fiery fury. It ain't over till it's over, folks, because Roscoe isn't going to let his money go unpaid. I'm Robert P. Fitton, getting ready for the final episode next time of Downsized, a novel of possibility, Mr. Sackett. Good evening. All of my books are available in paperback. Kindle and audio at www.fitandbooks.com, or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz-pizzazz.com.